0: The well, folks going to just uh, say a word of thanks to those that have invited me to come along to the Studer. Uh, difficulty finding the place it was many many years ago. Uh, we're right in the sticks, I still haven't got a mobile signal on my phone, so I had to change provider. I think Ross is with three, and he's getting a signal. But I thought to myself, it's an unusual place to meet for young people, especially when there's no mobile signal. So uh, hopefully uh, you'll not need your phones. But it is a joy. I got the, the message from Rebecca when I come along and share my testimony. Last year, uh, we were involved in quite a lot of gospel campaigns, missions right across the province. and uh, We were greatly encouraged just to know uh, that uh, the Lord was blessing his word. But whenever I share my testimony, they do a lot of outreach and a lot of folks come out of curiosity. That's what they come for. But it does mean uh, that very large attendances come uh, during the gospel campaigns. I remember one night I had a meeting. And they asked me would I share my testimony and I did, and there was over a thousand people came in. A thousand. I couldn't believe it. When I came right in from the little prayer room into the church building in Valomina, it was filled to capacity. Every empty room they were sitting on the very stairs, and I was shaking. Uh, but I'm not as bad here tonight, uh, but it's always a joy to share with you a personal word of testimony. The problem is I forgot my glasses, I couldn't even see the, the hymns I was singing. So I was singing different words. And I'm going to read scripture and I can't even say it. So I'm going to have to try and quote uh, this scripture from memory if I can. And if I make a mistake, you'll forgive me. But it's Psalm 34. And I just want to read from verse 1. Psalm 34. Hopefully uh, my memory will serve me well tonight. Psalm 34 and the verse 1. And the word of God tells us. The psalmist says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be. In my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof. And be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me. And delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened. And their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him. And saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. And delivereth them who taste and see. That the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Amen. The Lord bless his word to our hearts. Father in heaven, we ask now for thy presence to intensify. We ask for grace and for help as we hear. And for me as I would share. Uh, the things that the Lord has done for my soul, enable me to make much of the Saviour, encourage every heart tonight, and grant, Lord, that we may think of others who are deep down in sin, we think of those who are, Lord, in the bond slave of, Lord, addiction, we think of those who are caught up in, Lord, alcohol and drugs, and those who are, Lord, living a very immoral and sinful life, for those who are incarcerated this evening and, the prisons in Ulster. We just pray for our young people We think of those who are moving into paramilitary circles, those who are, Lord, pushing drugs and getting involved in a different, Lord, criminal activity. We think of homes that are broken tonight, Lord, of young people who are now incarcerated awaiting sentence, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, for lives to be changed and transformed. And we believe there's hope. We believe there's an answer. and Christ is the answer. The gospel is the power of God of the salvation to everyone that believeth. And we do pray for so many that we know, so many that we're in touch with, so many that we're trying to help, Lord, who are caught up, Lord, with addiction and with sin, and Lord, with, uh, Lord, bad company. We just pray for the deliverance of these young men and women. We pray, Lord, for salvation to visit them and for these young people that you'll watch over them this incoming year, who knows at the end of the year where any of us would be, but for the grace of God. Lord, there's so many temptations out there. And on a Saturday evening, Lord, there are many other places young people could be, but they're found here in this hall, Lord, under the sound of thy word. And we thank thee for that. Let's each head bowed and each heart and each home represented. We commit them to thee and we pray for them. And ask, Lord, that young in life they may learn to serve the Lord, that they may walk with God this year, this year, year when Christ means more to them than he did last year. And we pray Lord you'll encourage those who are saved. And if there's one or more who are cold at heart, started the year out of touch with God. We pray that this will be the night that we return to first love again. And for even if there's one out of Christ without a saviour, Lord, may they begin this year in Christ. May they come as a sinner to the Lord. So be with us now, and Father, in answer to prayer, be pleased to fill me now with thy Holy Spirit, enable me to share Christ and to give my testimony. But above all, we pray you'll glorify Thy dear Son. We ask these things now in his precious and worthy name. Amen. Well, I never had the privilege of being brought up in a Christian home. In fact, it was quite the opposite. My mum and my dad, they were never married. I didn't realise that until about maybe just about 20 years ago. Um, I discovered that uh, my mother and father were never married. In fact, it wasn't only a, an immoral relationship, but uh, it was a, a relationship that my father and my mother, well, they'd broken up another home and they had started a home together. Uh, sadly, there were already children born to my mother's uh, previous relationship, and then whenever she ran away, basically, as a young person with my father, there were another three children born into that home, and uh, I was born into an extremely dysfunctional home. Both my mum and dad were alcoholics. Uh, my mother, uh, she had no really love for her children. Uh, my dad seemed to be the one that cared. Uh, I can never remember a single moment that I was ever hugged or kissed by my mum, I can't remember a single moment in my entire life that had any affection shown to me by my mother. And my father was very similar. I don't know what happened, but we were born in England. And then my mum and dad, for some reason, split up. As I said to you, they were never married. My father returned home again. And I don't know why or how it happened, but he took custody of his three children. And he ripped them from the home. And he brought us across in the boat from Liverpool to Belfast. And then to a place called Ardmore just outside of It was there we stayed with our grandparents because we needed to be looked after. Um, My dad got a job. Along with the job came the money. And he started to drink heavily. And most weekends my father would just spend the whole weekend just drinking. We were looked after by our grandparents. Um, Life for me was okay. Went to the local primary school. I want to fast forward a little here because I want to finish early tonight. So you can get your supper and not your breakfast. All right, I'm notorious, I know, for preaching long, as some young people know all about that. Uh, but uh, my mum never really made contact with us. My father told me uh, that he had received a letter from England to say that my mother had died. So my brother called, he a searched for the grave, could never find it. But anyway, my father took custody of his boys. He decided that uh, living with our grandparents didn't give him enough freedom to drink. And so he moved into a council house. In Lurgan, in James's Street, and we started the local primary school, and my father started to drink heavily. He was able to hold down a job. He was what is known as a, a functioning alcoholic, that is, he could actually work at the same time as drink, and he was a very heavy drinker, but he wasn't satisfied to drink himself. He brought quite a lot of men home with him on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, right through the weekend, and our house became a halfway house for every drunkard and gambler. In Lurgan, they had card schools in my home, and right through the weeknights as well as the weekends, and of course the drink, smoking, everything was going on. My brother Colin, sadly, he became an alcoholic, because just as you, young person, would drink water, or you would drink juice, or whatever it is, fizzy drinks, my brother Colin started to drink beer. It was just freely available in our house, just lying about, bottles of it, and he started to drink. When he was a child, I was introduced to alcohol, sad to say. When I was three years of age, my father started me drinking. When I was three years of age, and you think of that, at uh, three years of age, my father started me drinking. But thankfully, I didn't like alcohol. I never liked the taste of it, but I was forced to drink it and then laughed at it whenever I was drunk as a child. I remember standing around the living room in front of men and they started to laugh until one man rebuked my father and said, Tommy, it's not right. Uh, he was embarrassed, and out of embarrassment, my father shot. But they just laughed at the child, drunk, um, sipping beer, and then obviously staggering around the living room. Uh, things got worse because my father, he went out and he became a very drunken, violent man. And sad to say, uh, my body bore the marks of my father's cruelty. And I would have gone to school in the mornings, and I was never as well-dressed as anybody else. My two brothers were the same. Uh, my father never spent a penny on us. He never fed us. The Neighbours actually fed us. Um, sad to say, I had to go round, I would have stolen, I would have taken things from shops, uh, from doors, food, anything, uh, just to feed myself a local charity shop, would have come round with clothes, and we had a room, and in that room was nothing but clothes, and I mean just on a floor, a wooden floor like this, and I used to sit in the middle of a pile of about two feet of clothes, and whatever fitted me, I just dressed. I went out to school, and obviously I wasn't as well-dressed as everyone else. (coughs) Uh, We got into fights, we got into trouble, and uh, I was outside the headmaster's office. In those days, you got the cane, and I was caned, and I was beaten by uh, teachers, and obviously, as well, in the school playground, I was picked on, and I was fighting, getting into trouble all the time. And then there was times I just didn't bother going to school, and I mitched off, and I took refuge in a derelict house, and obviously no homeworks were ever submitted. Very little education was given. I was just allowed to sit in the class at times and ignored, completely ignored by the teacher. Given some other little piece of paper or some item whenever we were doing craft and so on, just to work with. I never entered into any of the exams, and I just sat basically in the class, and I was forced to go to school. (laughs) I could say forced. Uh, There's some teachers who did care. Some teachers who certainly uh, worked with me and gave me help. And there were neighbours who were very good to us. But there's one lady in particular, and he called her Elsie, and she was a born-again Christian. And uh, she lived just a few streets down from us. She worked with my father in the local paper factory. Fast forward, Elsie visited our home, and she started to clean and tidy and cook for us. And then she started to look after us. She would would have taken money off my dad, given to, uh, to us, and we would be able to buy food. And she'd made sure that we were looked after. Nelsie was very, very good. And she wanted to get my dad out to church, but my father couldn't go to church because of his drinking habits. And he was drunk at the weekends. He was never in a sober condition to go out to church. But Elsie persevered. And uh, one night my father was getting ready. And we asked him, well, is he going out to the, the institute or the Advent social club? That's where he was drinking. Or out to a dark spot? And he said, no. He says, I'm going to a meeting with Elsie. And it was a huge tent, and I remember it It was in 1976, and uh, it was a huge tent, and it was a thousand-seater tent, and it was called the Way to Life Crusade. It was on my school grounds, it's where I kicked football, and they put the big tent on the football pitch, and I couldn't kick football, that's how I remember it, and all the young ones in the school, we're all going to it just out of curiosity, and there was over a thousand people meeting in that tent, and there was a man called Dick Saunders, and he was the evangelist. And um, he lived in the, the south of England in Eastbourne. He just died recently actually. And he was preaching the gospel with unusual power. And there were quite a number of folks in the Lurgan area and the Portadown area that actually were getting saved at this tent mission. And we went along, <clears throat> we just sat there because it was just novelty to us, we just went into the meetings and they were singing, they were preaching, and there's no doubt there was a sense of the Lord's presence. But my father actually went out to that meeting. And he went out to that tent mission with Elsie. And I remember the night, I wasn't at the meeting that night with my two brothers, but my dad came home and uh, he said whenever he came home he went straight up to bed. And that was unusual because he, he was a bad-tempered man uh, and he would always remind me of something I'd done in the past, even though he had beaten me for it. He would have brought it up again and then he would hit me again. But this night he went to bed and I couldn't believe it. He shouted, boys, come up here, I want you. And we raced up the stairs, jumped on his bed, and as best as my dad knew how, he says, lads, your old man's got saved. You know, we didn't even know what that word meant. The brother gave it, said, dad, you mean there's going to be no more drink? He said, son, that's right, no more drink. And young people, can I say something to you? Uh, My father quit the drink like that, and then he got saved. That was in 1976. And right up until February 25th, 1990, my father passed away. Not one drop of drink crossed his lips. Uh, We read in the psalm there in the verse uh, 7 or so or 5, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them, verse 7. And you know, the Lord encamped around around my dad. People in the Windsor Bar laughed and they said, Tommy Martin, an alcoholic, saved, I right, good living for the living. And nobody believed in learning that my father was converted. In fact, they didn't believe he could be converted. Well, such was the change in his life. Folks to this day at Bergen remember the change in Tommy Martin. He was just an old drunkard from a wino from James Street in Bergen, and folks remembered the, the tremendous change. And for the first time in my life, my father started to show an interest in me and my two brothers. And he brought us along to church, Sunday school. He sent us along to the Boys Brigade and different things, and got us involved in youth clubs and try to get us to under the sound of the gospel. He prayed for us. He witnessed to us. And I couldn't deny, young people, that there was a God in heaven. I couldn't deny. And for the first time in my life, I started to read the Bible. And my dad showed me portions of scripture. And he showed me from the word of God that I was a sinner. And he showed me that there was a heaven and a hell and a judgment day. And he showed me also that I could not save myself. And he pointed me to Christ, in that sense, to the word of God and showed me from the Bible that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, commended this word as we heard in the opening prayer and died on the cross to save me. And I really believe that with all my heart. The only problem is I didn't receive it. I thought to myself, well, I know I need to be saved. I know I'm a sinner. If I die now, I'll be in hell. I know that. But well, I just wait until I'm at dad's age. I'll enjoy a bit of the world and then when I'm older, I'll get saved. That's a lie from the devil. I didn't know the verse of scripture. But behold, now is the accepted time. Let me fast forward. I'm trying to, definitely trying to finish early for you. Uh, David and myself in particular, not my brother Colin, but my other brother, younger brother David, and myself, and we all headed, the three of us headed off into the world. But David and I, we took the road a different direction from my brother Colin. In fact, we started to chase after the things of this world, sadly, as a teenager, with drink and drugs and other things. And the wrong company, that's for sure. It was in 1981, many of you were not even born then. In fact, I I, I guarantee every one of you weren't born then. But 1981, it was the height of the hunger strikes in this province. And there were 10 IRA men who had starved themselves to death in the now infamous Mays prison. And at that time, there was sporadic outbursts of violence in the city of Belfast and Londonderry. And Lurgan was a deeply divided and sectarian town. And it was a very bitter town, and it still is to this day deeply divided sectarian town and uh, David and myself were going to house parties We you where they were to take you to the, the very places tonight and pour it down and uh, the paramilitaries were there and they were recruiting a lot of young men you know, teenage, teenage boys into their ranks to what they called to shred out their ranks for a doomsday battle because during the hunger strikes they thought there was going to be civil strife and civil war in the province and the paramilitaries said they couldn't trust the British Army to protect their community, which was wrong. And uh, they decided that they would uh, increase their numbers and they, they, they basically organised these house parties. And the drink and the drugs was freely there. I was involved in it, sadly. And when I came home from those house parties, I knew what they were designed for. And I determined that I would not be joining any paramilitary group. Or getting involved in any characteristic activity but there's an old saying with the drinks in the website. and how true that is uh, and they were designed with drink and drugs just to lull you in and then they introduce you to some sinister sides of paramilitarism and the so-called uh, secrecy of it and uh, of course mentioning all the atrocities and what they believe certain individuals have done my own family was touched with the troubles lives lost some of my own friends it was screwed and different other people uh, we're all killed and so on. But there's no justification for violence. But however, uh, we were there. And sadly, David and myself got involved in the race. It wasn't too long in a fast forwarding, by the way. Uh, the RUC as they were known then, uh, I remember at half past or, sorry, at 6 o'clock in the morning, there was this big roar of these grey landrovers outside that surrounded our house in the morning state. All the neighbours would come out because of the commotion. And they were banging on the door. And I was up in the bedroom and I knew they're going to come and arrest david and myself and i was there i just had planned what i was going to say absolutely nothing and uh, the next thing, a big policeman came into my bedroom uh, in fact there were two and he stood at the end of my bed and he asked me my name and he says i am thomas martin and he says i'm arresting you and the detectives in goth barracks would like a word with you and your brother david so we were taken along to goth barracks interrogated for three days and three nights and then we were remanded in custody to the crumlin road prison it's now derelict, although uh, you can get a tour of it. I've had a tour and give them a testimony in it as well uh, during the time of the visit from friends uh, from Romania. But um, I was taken from the golf parks in County Armagh and I was then placed on the land in the Prominent Road Prison. It was an old Victorian side prison and uh, there were cockroaches, there were all these uh, silverfish, there was other insects. I actually don't know the name of them. I don't even know if could even uh, find them. They are probably nearly extinct, but they were living in the Trumman Road. There was everything. There was rats, everything. And uh, you were there in an old Victoria jail, cold and damp. And uh, it was overpopulated. And No matter what cell we went into, we shared the cell with with, three of us in total. The cell was... All the cells were eight feet to 13. Now, you try and work that out. And three people living in it. And I said, and I was... Uh, 19 years of the age and my brother David was 18. And we stayed for 13 months in the Cronin Road on the land. But sadly our case took a turn for the worse. Because an individual turned what is known as Queen's Evidence or Supergrass. He became the first lawyer the Supergrass trial in the province. And there were 27 men implicated in terrorist activity in the Middlesex area. And David and I were the youngest along with a young fellow from County Armagh, uh, actually from Armagh City. And we were the youngest people there at the Frumman Road at that time. And we came up for trial and sadly uh, the judge found us guilty and he sentenced me to some 27 years in prison. And I remember standing just as a 20 year old and I remember listening to the sentencing. The court was packed and the police and the prison officers and the gallery and all the papers were there and all the news reporters were there and so on and so on and the cameras were outside and it was big headline news they got this verdict and this sentencing for 14 men out of 27. Billy Wright, who's now dead and he's in eternity. Uh, Billy Wright got off along with others and um, some of us younger men were kept and then we were sentenced. I never forget standing on my own in the number one court in Belfast as a young person and hearing the judge say, I sentenced you to 27 years in prison. And I, I could work it out in my mind that uh, 12 years and then 10 and 5 and so on. Uh, that means I have another six and a half, six full years to serve in prison, working on the 50% remission. And um, the other sentences, I don't want to complicate you, rolling concurrently into the, the, the stiffest one. But I remember being handcuffed to a prison officer, being dragged down this, this stone staircase, then into a holding cell, just a wooden cell. Uh, it was pitch black and they shoved me under my own handcuffed, and they just closed the door. There was only a little kink of light at the bottom. And I could hear the cries of other prisoners who had been sentenced, and other Republicans as well, as loyalists. I could hear them crying. And I was sitting there in just stone silence, and yet I was sitting in darkness. I believe me, it was darkness, only for a little kink of light. It's an awful feeling. And I was brought down underground, by the way. When you're taken from, it's all derelict now, the Plumman Road and the, and the jail, and the, and the court either on either side of the road. If you ever drive down the Plumman Road, you'll find if you're coming towards Uh, shackle road you'll find the prison on the right hand side and the courthouse on the left and when you're sentenced in the courthouse you go underground and you're taken through a whitewashed tunnel I've been through that tunnel recently and you're taken into the prison cell and you're kept there it's a picture of hell you know standing before God the Lord finding you guilty of rejecting his son spurring his offer of mercy and then being condemned to God's penitentiary hell for all eternity going down, chained, and then cast into darkness. It was an awful feeling. And, I, and then you hear the howls and screams of other prisoners. And I, I mean, these were grown men, and they were given very heavy sentencing, and they never see their wife or their child ever again. Some of them got natural life, some of them got life in prison, some of them, because they were under 21 years of age, which I was, they got what was known as a SOSP, that is Secretary of State's Pleasure, during the recovery in our province he would send a little paper, some of those men served maybe 17 to 20 odd years in prison from they were 16 and uh, the prison was filled with young people from 16 to 20, it's an amazing thing to see so many young people and they're all incarcerated in prison and, and for many of them their lives were ruined, and their lives were over at least I had a date when I would be released many of those young men that I was in with they had no date of release no date, no time they don't know when they'll actually get out or ever get out. Uh, but uh, again, i fast forward. My behaviour wasn't good in prison. People said if I was in prison, I would change too. I didn't. I spent the worst two years of my life in prison. I was brought down to the Maze prison and to the high security unit. Now, I messed about. I was only joking at some times, but I could escape from handcuffs. So I knew how to do it. And I was able to do tricks with the handcuffs. So whenever I was handcuffed, uh, I always, whenever they put me into the wee Black Mariah, as they call it, I could actually escape from the cuffs. And then just as they opened the door, I used to hand the cuffs to them. That was a big security risk. Or if you remember the couple of other guys, a few of us could get out of the cuffs. We used to take all our handcuffs off and we used to put them all him. <laughs> These ankles, we handcuffed them to the, the seats. We handcuffed all his hands. And he, we all walked out with no handcuffs. And this point said, look at me, he's covered in handcuffs. And then it became a security risk that followed me through prison life. And I had to be accompanied under maximum security. And I was only messing about. I wasn't escaping. Well, definitely wasn't. But I was just messing about. Just to put in the time. But they treated it very seriously. I had to be accompanied eh, for visits and any movement in the prison. I remember one officer saying to me, what have you been doing? He me, nothing. What, what do you mean? He says, you, you've got a red mark in your book. You're flagged up as, as high security. Me? That's not me. What's wrong with me? He says, can you escape from cuts? He said, I was only messing about. As well, it says it's gone down in your record, and that followed me to the very last day that I was released from prison uh, when there was no need for handcuffs. But uh, I did misbehave, and I was in what is known as solitary confinement. That means they were punished. It's a prison inside a prison, and I was sent to what is known as the boards. I can tell you now exactly what it was. It was a wooden seat that came out exactly what you're sitting on, only a small one it came out from the wall. That was your seat. Then just a little higher, coming out from the wall, that was your table. And uh, it was only about twice the size of this Bible for your seat, and about three times the size of this Bible for your chair or for your table. And then there was a concrete slab, a single bed, a concrete slab on the ground, and it had a concrete pillow, and that's what you slept on. You weren't allowed a mattress or a pillow or any blankets. You weren't allowed any shoes. Or, well, they took the laces out of your shoes They took your belt away in case you hung yourself. And you were kept in solitary confinement, and I was kept for days, Uh, isolated from the prison population. It's one of the worst experiences I've ever had in my life. I was locked up for two and a half years, for 23 hours a day. I went down to McGabry to visit a fella who's been extradited to Florida, and his mother contacted me and said, Would you visit him? And I did. And he said to me, He says, I've been in solitary confinement, one hour's exercise. For three weeks. And I says I'll tell you what then. You see whenever you're in solitary confinement. For 23 hours a day. And some days 24 because you didn't get exercise. For two and a half years. i understand. understand. Uh, maybe i might understand. What you're going through. And that sort of took the wind out of the sail. Because he was complaining for three weeks. I was two and a half years. Locked up. For 23 hours a day. In a cell with other men. For uh, 8 feet by 13. It was a terrible experience for me. An awful experience. But um, when I was in solitary confinement. I could read the Bible. And that's all I had was the Bible. And in my cell there was a Bible. And then Christians in the prison. The prison officer gave me Christian literature. And so I was started to read. I never read anything in my life. But I started to read. And that's what I did. I started to read the Bible. I started to read gospel literature. Gospel tracts. Little booklets and magazines that came in, and I really started to read the Word of God. And as I began to read the Bible, I realized that I needed to be saved, that my life was spiraling out of control, and that if I think things were bad now, if I was to die, and there was that possibility, because I was on a protest for 16 months or so, 14 months, for segregation from Republican prisoners. I put myself in solitary confinement basically for 14 months, to separate from Republican prisoners, who said that if I was to come down to their wings, that they would kill us. Uh, and they tried to kill a friend of mine, uh, and he was scalded by a bucket of boiling hot water that was poured over his back. Nine-tenths of his back had to be skin grafted, and they beat him with hammers, and they were going to kill him. And he survived, and he's alive to this day. As a born again, Christian, he's alive to this day. Uh, but they intended to kill him, and there's no doubt they would have when he, uh, he was rescued by prison officers. So I started to read the Bible. And one night uh, I was reading the Bible and then I read a little booklet by an evangelist called Noel Grant called Let Him In. And I realized that for 21 years of my life, I kept the door shut of my heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. I allowed everybody to enter, but there was no room for the Lord. There was no time for Christ. And there was no place in my life for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I started to read the gospel. Uh, Christ came into this world. He died on the cross. He shed his blood. He bore my sins in his own body. And it really broke me. For the first time in a long time, I began to weep, cry. I began to feel, I didn't know what it was called, but it's called conviction. I don't die. I was miserable. I was unhappy. Yet, I was probably at my fittest. I was running for miles in any exercise I was getting. I was about nine and a half stone then. I remember it well. I don't remember it. it probably that long ago. And I roamed for miles upon miles upon miles just running in the prison. And uh, never stopped running for years. You see, I've stopped it now. Uh, but never stopped then. And I was at my fittest. And in many ways, youth. And there's a possibility of getting out of prison at a later date. And life could be better, but I was miserable. And the Lord convicted me. It's the 13th of June, 1983. I remember it well. And I was lying in my cell. There was a boy below me in the bunk. And uh, he was smoking. And he smelled the smoke coming up past me. And he said to me, do you want a cigarette? And I said, no. And he bounced up out of his bed. He said, you're reading that Bible and that gospel literature. Nothing about them Christians. You're going to become a Christian. And I just couldn't tell him that, yes, you're right, I am. He said, no, I'm not. And I felt guilty he got back into the bump again, and he just smiled and says, You are, I know you are. And I thought, He's right, I am. I am. A I'm going to do it tonight. And I just lifted a little bit and prayed the prayer at the end of it, and asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my heart and my life. And you know, your people, that night the Lord saved me. Now, I want to tell you, there was no blinding light, there was no roar of thunder, there was no flash of lightning, there was no earthquake. You say, well, how did you know you were saved? Well, see, that night when Christ came into my heart and forgave me my my sins, and I believed that he died for me and shed his blood for me and rose from the dead for me and paid the price for my sins, when I believed that and received Christ into my heart, the burden, of the sense of guilt that I had, disappeared. And in its place came this deep-seated peace. I've never had that in my life before then. I've had it ever since. And I knew that it was well with my soul, and the Lord had saved me. Next day, I went out under the prison wing, and I sought out my brother David, and I told him that I had become a Christian the night before, and he went down the wing and told every prisoner, in the most prison were in that cell, in that uh, H-block, and uh, we were in one of the, the wings of the H-block, so it was about 36 men, and he told everybody, this prisoners, and everybody, psychopaths of that that his brother Thomas had got saved, become a Christian, and people were shouting, oh no, there's another one on the Hallelujah bus. That's what they used to say. And uh, we were still in protest, by the way. We were non-conforming prisoners. Seven weeks later, 31st of July, 1983, I heard a mighty Hallelujah in the prison wing, and I raced out of the cell, looked up to the very top grill, we call it, where the officers are, and I saw another Christian inmate shaking hands with my brother, David. He too had come to know Christ as a saviour. But David and I, because we're in protest, we're in association with the paramilitaries, and for me it was the EVF, and we met the leaders of paramilitarism, the, the various factions in the Maze prison, from the UDA to the UFF, we brought in the Hand Commando, the UFF, every faction of loyalism, we brought into one cell, and they put the little set the little bar so that we couldn't close the door, and we had a meeting with them, and David and I told them, and I was shaking, we told them that we're no longer going to be on protest, we're breaking away from paramilitarism and the two of us are now born again Christians and are going to be uh, conforming prisoners in the maze. now. It was a very dangerous thing to do. So we expected that we would get a beating and a very severe one. And then we would just be left in the cell and the prison officer would be told there's two men need to be taken out. We may have survived it, we may not, I don't know. But all I knew was this, I was willing to serve the Lord and obey the Lord and we told them. And they didn't give us a beating, which generally does happen when you break away from them and you leave a protest. That's a betrayal and there's a price to pay for it. So we expected that. We thought, well, if it comes, it comes. That's the way it has to be to obey the Lord. But they didn't. In fact, they asked us to stay and that we would be an influence on other men. But we said, no, we can't. Fast forward very quickly. We came off the protest. We became conforming prisoners and uh, David and I became trustees along with another young fellow, Jim Smith or Jack from Scotland. We became the first trustees in the Mays prison. That is, we worked with the prison officers. I was uh, given license to work outside the prison walls, although it was never tested, by the way. Uh, they never put me outside the prison walls. I may have been tempted, because I was fast, to run on home <laughs> and just sit there and they can come and pick me up again. But we, we were trustees. I was the highest paid prisoner in the Mays prison. I was on £2.56 a week. I was the highest paid prisoner uh, for working in the Mays prison. Now, I met my wife when I was in prison. I had to be careful what I say. One, she's not here tonight. And two, it's being taped. Isn't that right, Russ? Okay, I had to be careful what I say. I met my wife when I was in prison. I said that in a meeting one time. I said, I met my wife when I was in jail. And after the meeting was over, my wife was at the door. Uh, and this dear old lady came up to her and said, what were you in for, love? <laughs> and June says, I wasn't in jail. And she said to me, Tom, don't you ever say you met me in prison. Say you were in prison and I wrote to you. And that's what happened. June wrote to me when I was in jail. She was a believer. She was saved when she was eight. And we were going together in a relationship for two years, two and a half years. And out of that time, we only seen each other for two weeks or two and a half years. Half our visit every so often. I wrote June 250 romantic letters. We only threw them out recently, in case they not do a book. I'd <laughs> be embarrassed. Uh, but June and I got in 1988. And I got married right after 12 years into a life sentence. And with uh, three boys, uh, uh, Aaron, Samuel, and Timothy. One of them just got married last year. And, and each of them professed faith. The eldest fellow is not just walking the way he should. Uh, it grieves our hearts. But we're thankful to the Lord for these mercies from God. And the Lord has been good to us. Can I tell you something, one? Many in my family, because I started to pray for them, got saved. At one in particular was my brother Colin. And he was off the rails. Colin Martin, known in Lurgan. He was a real fighter. He just fought and fought and fought. Please, anybody, was an awful man for drink. But the Lord saved him a year and a half before he died. He was 57 when he passed away. And the remarkable thing, too, was that I discovered my mother was alive. I was told she was dead. It was about twenty years ago I discovered she was alive and she was living twenty two miles from my house in Bangor. And she tried to get down to the prison to visit me. because she'd seen our case on television and she'd seen the names of David and Thomas Martin. She knew it was her two boys. But they wouldn't let her in, and my father made no contact with her and wouldn't let us. But we were able to contact with her and we stayed for two years together with her and then she passed away and I she did her funeral service. Very quietly, discreetly, I was able to see my mother buried. Uh, God called me into Bible College. That was a big thing because one, I had no education. I left school when I was fifteen. No formal education. Not a lot of exams to get in, and uh, dozens of exams to get out of. Whitfield was going to say jail there, but that's that's wrong. Uh, Whitfield College of the Bible. The Lord called me. Spent four years trained, and then the Lord opened the door for ministry uh, as a, a minister in Lisburn. For some 23 years. And then I got a call to Cumber. I've been there for three years here in March or January this very month. Uh, three years it's still there in Cumber. The Lord has been really good to me young person. I appreciate your attention tonight. And I know we've gone past the nine, But we're going to finish here. The Lord has been very good to me. I don't know why. I can't explain why I could ever love a sinner. But how you could ever love me? But he did. And that's what really broke me. He loved me. Whenever I discovered that, I knew not only came to him as a sinner, but I dedicated my life to him. and I, I, I'm not into politics. I'm not even into things that the world has for people. I just want to live for Christ. My aim was when I dedicated my body to the Lord at a young person's meeting in the martyrs Easter convention. It was for to me to live Christ, to die Christ. That's Christ for me. That's all I care about is the Lord. I don't wish silver or gold for my children or even for young people, just that you might know the Lord, that you might walk with Christ. And there's nothing else in this world, nothing uh, that would compensate for not walking with Christ or knowing him. And, and I don't know where you stand with God. I would suppose that uh, some of you, if not all of you, have made a profession of faith and uh, that you know Christ as your saviour. I trust that is the case but if you don't, well, no better way to start the year than coming as a sinner to the Lord, telling him you're sorry for your sin, believing that he died for you, and then take him into your heart. And if you are saved, and maybe you've already done it this year, you dedicate your life, you consecrate whatever days you have, and give it to Christ. He has given us all for you, and he just expects my son, my daughter, give me my heart. I trust the Lord the best that these words to our hearts. we just pray in prayer. And we give thanks for the food. Father, we thank you for a sense of the divine presence. We thank you for mercy seen and unseen, and for thy goodness. We thank you for the love of Christ, our Saviour, that took him from heaven to earth, to live a sinlessly perfect life, God veiled in human flesh, and then to die, Lord, that horrible death on the cross, to take the wrath of God upon our sin, and to pay the price and to shed his blood, and we thank thee for the purchase of salvation, for his resurrection and ascension to heaven, for his intercession at the Father's right hand, those who receive as he keeps, and we rejoice he satisfies, lest these young people encourage their hearts. For those who know and love the Lord, lead them on with thyself. Let this be a year of growth and a year, Lord, when they will increase in the knowledge of God, that they will walk with the Lord this year, that they will know what it is like enough to have a life that pleases the Lord. Bless those who have the oversight here in the studio. We pray that you'll we'll give them help. Remember those who come this year uh, to sing, to testify, to speak. Grant, Lord, that there'll be profit and there'll be blessing even this year. And we ask, Lord, to be fruit for their neighbour. So watch over us now. And yeah. take up our thanks for these good things that have been provided. As we eat and drink together, as we fellowship. We pray that Christ will be honoured. And Christ will be uplifted, honoured and glorified. We offer these Thanksgiving thanks. In his precious and worthy name. Amen.